looking at. If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. First, a couple of announcements. Uh, Firstly, um, please stay after the service. We have a food truck coming, um, almost definitely. And um, we're excited to to, um, just celebrate um, this new place and being together. There will be a food truck outside. You can buy lunch. There will be drinks provided. There is a park space over here uh, where kids are free to kind of run around and do their thing. There's a playground over there that looks like it's part of that preschool, but it's not. It's part of the park, so you're welcome to <laughs> go in there and, um, and let your kids have fun there. So please stay for that. Um, also, I want to let you know that as we um, are kind of easing back into meeting together in person, inside, we are also easing back into children's ministry. Table Kids will be uh, slowly restarting over the next couple of weeks. So there's no children's ministry this morning, and so um, let me just say, children are a blessing. Um, We love having kids in worship. Kids are always welcome and invited into uh, worship with us, and uh, so don't worry about your kids moving around and making noise. Uh, It's a joy to have them here, but starting next week, we're going to be slowly um, easing back into children's ministry. We'll have Table kids, cla- uh, table kids class for zero to three-year-olds beginning next week, and we're going to do that for two weeks, and then hopefully, God willing, we'll add kind of the next age group, and we'll just kind of slowly ease back into it and just give ourselves time to see what the capacity of our, both our teachers and how many, how many kids we have there turns out to be as we just try to navigate uh, wisdom on many fronts. And then the last thing I want to say, just as an announcement, is um, this new space, and at some point, we should probably uh, share more details about what our arrangement is um, with this space. We don't own this space. Um, we, we hope to be here for a long time, but um, we, we have a, a month-to-month lease agreement to use the space for the time being. But this is, a, this is not like a space that our church or our staff is preparing like on your behalf. This is um, a little bit like a family, you know, a church is a family, and just like a family moving into a new house, there are a lot of DIY projects, and so uh, thank you so much to those of you over the last two weeks that have been here painting and cleaning and throwing amazing amounts of junk away. Um, There will probably be a lot more opportunities to do that, Um, so thank you for being a part of that, but also... This is um, a space that we want to use and and kind of occupy together as a church family. And so if you have thoughts and ideas about how we might more effectively use this space, uh, we would love to hear that. And uh, you're welcome to talk to me or to Katie or to Danny. And in like a month, you can talk to Brad about that too. But not before that. (laughs) Um, Okay. Well, let me pray for us before we turn our attention to God's word. Let's pray together. Oh God, as we gather this morning in this new place for us, uh, many of us come with all sorts of thoughts, all sorts of feelings. Some of us come weary, some of us come um, maybe warily, anxiously, maybe some of us come with great hope and expectation. 
God, as we give our attention to your word this morning, we pray that you would meet us, that you would um, see us as we are, that you would speak to us, Holy Spirit, exactly as we need to uh, meet you. Would you cleanse us? Would you encourage us? Would you help us for the first time or the thousandth time to see the beauty of Jesus? That we might be uh, better equipped to be the people you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're joining us for the first time in uh, several weeks, we've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah, which has been um, remarkably relevant. Six weeks ago, we started a series in the book of Nehemiah where God's people have been returning from a time of not being able to gather, and they're trying to rebuild walls. And we have been regathering after a time of not meeting together, looking for walls. And in chapter 6, the wall is done, and we're meeting inside for the first time. So let's give our attention to God's word. Nehemiah 6.1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I, sent the messenger, and I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to, to me with an open letter in his hand. In it, it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are rebuilding the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there's a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports, so now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you, have, as, you, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mechatabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And we'll end there. This is God's word. Well, this morning I want to tell you about, um, talk to you about one of my favorite restaurants. I should also mention there will be a, a Q&A 
probably, almost definitely this week after the sermon. Um, I think we have the tech figured out. And so if you have questions during the sermon, you can text them to that number, and uh, I will um, answer them after the sermon. Okay, so my favorite restaurant is um, a place that you may have heard of. It's called Panda Express. Um, if I'm honest, I shouldn't probably say so much that it's my favorite restaurant as that it is my guilty pleasure. Um, there have been many times when I've made a late night run to Panda Express. There was one time several years ago that Ashley and I were eating dinner at Panda Express, and as we're sitting there eating orange chicken and looking at each other, I said to Ashley, I have a confession to make, and she got very serious, and I said, I actually ate lunch here today. <laughs> Um, but a funny thing happened once when I was at Pan Express. I was getting up to the cash register, and I noticed this plaque on the wall by the cash register, and it said, um, it said this. It, ha it had Panda Express's mission statement plastered on the wall there by the cash register, and it said that the mission of Panda Express is to deliver exceptional Asian dining experiences by building an organization where people are inspired to better their lives. And that has always struck me as really strange because I have never once eaten at Pan Express and been inspired, inspired to better my life. And I'm pretty confident that if I were inspired to better my life, it would involve eating at Pan Express far less frequently <laughs> than I do. <laughs> but that mission statement, every time I kind of guiltily go into Pan Express, it just sort of pings in the back of my mind and says, what are you doing here? <laughs> or what are you doing with your life? And I think that that idea of a mission statement has probably grown in um, uh, popularity in our culture over the last decades, uh, the last few decades, as it, um, and, it, and, and it probably for good reason, because it opens up several good questions for us. Do we know what our mission in life is? Do we know where we're going? Can we describe that mission in a way that is both accurate and motivating without empty platitudes? This morning, as a church, as we move into this new space, we're continuing this series in the book of Nehemiah. And it's a series, where, as I said a moment ago, where, where God's people have been in exile, and they are returning from exile, and God has called Nehemiah to lead the people in this rebuilding and regathering effort. And God is accomplishing his plans as his people work and as his people pray. And we've been in this section um, in chapters 4 through 6 th through the last couple weeks where Nehemiah is encountering opposition from outside and he is dealing with internal division within uh, God's people. And he continues to deal with this opposition in this passage I, I just read. And as we move into this new space as that God has provided for us, I think that what Nehemiah does as he encounters opposition is incredibly helpful for us because as Nehemiah encounters opposition, he realizes that he's got to be incredibly clear about the mission that God has called him to. And as we move into this new space, we've got to be incredibly clear about our mission together. As we stay on mission, we see that God is the one who provides for and protects his people. This base, this building is not so much um, the destination at the end of the journey as it is a launch pad for all sorts of ministry and mission going forward. 
We've seen that as Nehemiah leads God's people to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. There are people that don't want that to happen, and they've opposed Nehemiah's work, and they've tried a whole bunch of tactics in really overt ways, but this time they come to him much more subtly. And I think if we care about following God on mission in our place and in our time, we will face many of the same challenges that Nehemiah encounters. Opposition from outside the church, sure, and division within maybe the bigger challenge that we struggle with in our time. And without the benefit of perspective, it may be harder for us to navigate those challenges as we encounter them together. One of the realities in this time that we're living through and the cultural moment um, that, that we live in, the, the, the time that we are living through is characterized by things like outrage and disdain and polarization and misinformation. And these realities flow out of hearts that are gripped by fear. And so there's a tremendous opportunity for the church of Jesus in this time, for God's people to enter into these conversations with our friends and family members and coworkers with love and with truth. But that requires that we not be taken captive by outrage and misinformation ourselves. And Nehemiah gives us that perspective that we need to successfully, to faithfully navigate these times. How do we stay on mission? How do we keep um, how do we keep our focus on what God is doing in the world and what he has called us to join him in in this time? There, there are, in this passage, three sort of tactics or strategies for disrupting God's mission. And so I want to look with you briefly at them this morning. And the first thing that, w- that we see is distraction. Okay, so there are these two characters, Sanballat and Tobiah, And they keep coming trying to torpedo what God is doing through Nehemiah. And they've tried physical intimidation, and they've tried, like, mockery, just making fun of him. But the work continues, and they're frustrated. And so now they try a subtler tactic, and they just try to distract him. And they say in, um, uh, at the beginning of the passage, it says, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hecaphirim in the plain of Ono. And the idea here, I think, is, is if he's not going to, you know, be run off when we make fun of him, if he's not going to give in when we intimidate him, let's just try to distract him. Let's just get him to come down off of the wall and meet us in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> um, and, and if you look at geographically where the plain of Ono is, um, it's right in between Jerusalem and where the enemies of God's people are like encamped. It's right in the middle. And so it's, it, it, it's almost as if they're saying, let's come on out here, come down off the wall. You know, Nehemiah, there, there are a lot of things to care about, and you seem really hung up on this wall. Like, why is this wall the one thing that matters? Shouldn't we? There are lots of issues, and the people in this region are, are struggling with a lot of different things. Why don't you come down and talk with us? Let's meet in the middle. You know, this thing that you're doing is great, but why are you focused just on that one thing when there's so many problems? And what we see here, I think is obvious, is that we can get pulled off God's mission when we get distracted. And we can get distracted by many things and even good things that are not central to the mission that God has called us to as his people. And I think if we are honest about the state of the church in the North America, In this time that we're living through, I think we have to be honest that 
this distraction tactic is working. This distraction tactic is working. I think if you were to go out on the street and ask the average person, or honestly, even if you were to ask the average Christian, what is the mission that the church of Jesus is on? I don't think you would get a very clear answer. Sadly, I think we are distracted. I, I don't think you would get a very clear answer to that question. In fact, I know for a fact that you, that you wouldn't get a very clear answer to that question because two or three weeks ago, I got an email from the Barna Group. And the Barna Group is this group that researches trends in Christianity and religion more broadly in the United States. And two or three weeks ago, Barna sent this email to me and, you know, thousands of others. It wasn't like I was special. <laughs> um, and, and, and what they reported in this email is that the vast majority of Christians do not know what the Great Commission is. Um, the Great Commission, so just to be clear, the Great Commission is the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended bodily into heaven. You know, um, it's <laughs> what's the last thing you say to your kids when you drop them off at school? You know, you've given them all the instruction and then you roll up and they open the door and you say, I love you, right? Because it's the most important thing. And the last thing you say to your spouse when you, you know, leave in the morning is, you know, don't forget to stop and get these things at the grocery store because it's the most important thing <laughs> for dinner. And, and the last thing you say to your friends at the end of a great weekend uh, together, a great trip, is I just really have enjoyed being with you because it's the most important thing that, that we want to reiterate. And the Great Commission is the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended into heaven. It's the, most import- it's the thing that Jesus wants to impart on his church And according to the Barna Group, only 17% of Christians would say, I know what the Great Commission is and what it means. 25%, one in four of us, would say, I have heard the Great Commission, but I don't know what it means. And 51% of Christians would say, I don't even know what this Great Commission thing is that you're talking about. And so let's be honest about those aren't just describing other Christians elsewhere. I mean, this is us too. And so I just want to say, like, there is no shame. This is a good starting place. And if you're like, I, don't, I hope he tells us what the Great Commission is soon, because I don't know what it is, this is what Jesus said. The last thing Jesus said before he ascended into heaven was, all authority in heaven on, and on earth has been given to me, which is a staggering statement. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, because I am with you now and forever. The last thing Jesus said is, I have all authority, so I want you to go and make disciples. I want you to learn what it means to follow me. I want you to teach others what it means to follow me. I want you to apprentice yourself to me, and I want you to make other apprentices. I want you to find your identity so deeply in me that your kids want to know what the source of your life is. I want you to root your identity so deeply in me 
that the way that you respond to conflict and criticism is so gracious that your neighbors are curious about what gives you this other-centered way of life. And we live in a time where discipleship, I mean, even just the word discipleship, feels like it's sort of an extra credit option for the church. When the last thing Jesus said to us is, this is why you're here, this is your mission. We live in a time where we are distracted, and I love how Nehemiah responds here. It says that they asked him four times. They tried to distract him, and Nehemiah says, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Look, he is gracious, and he is truthful. He doesn't push back. He doesn't say how awful they are. He doesn't insult them, but he says, I'm doing a great work. And James Boyce, who uh, was a pastor in Philadelphia for many years, wrote a, wrote a book uh, where he comments on this passage And he says that when Nehemiah says, I cannot come down, he's not just talking about like coming down eight feet off of a wall. He's saying, I would be lowering myself below what God has called me to do if I were to come down. There are a lot of great causes, and so many of them are just an outworking of the gospel, the central truth claim of Christianity. And yet as God's people, we cannot get distracted from the work of making disciples because we're the only ones that can do that. So distraction. The second thing that, that we see, the second tactic to get the people of God off of, off of um, mission is character assassination, rumor and innuendo. Uh, Sanballat and Tobiah can't get him off mission, and so now they send an open letter. And they say, everybody knows that you're going to lead a rebellion and word is going to get back to the king, so why don't you just come and talk with us, okay? (laughs) And we all know what the purpose of an open letter is, right? Because the closed letter didn't work. They sent it four times already, and he's like, I'm not coming to talk with you about these things. And so now they say, we're going to send a letter so that everybody can see it along the way because we don't think you're going to do what we want, but maybe if we let everybody know, start these rumors about you, that, um, that there will be social pressure on you. And of course, I mean, could you imagine how much di- more difficult their open letter thing was than we have the internet now? But what they're saying, I think, is this. If you do the work God is calling you to, it will hurt you socially. And how does Nehemiah respond? You know, he responds with grace and truth. But here, this response, I think, is a little bit more truth than grace this time. Uh, verse 8, he says, Then I sent to him, saying... No such things as you, have, as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your head. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible, okay? <laughs> when somebody, um, you know, maybe at work criticizes you, you can just send them a little note that says, hey, I just want to encourage you, Nehemiah 6.8. <laughs> and if they don't think you're super weird to look that, like, they'll get up and it says, nothing that you're saying is true, you're just making it all up. And you just go along your way. (laughs) Grace and truth, but a little bit more truth this time, but also prayer. He says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. People are trying to assassinate my character, and so I'm going to entrust my reputation to God himself. Thirdly, compromise. So there's a guy named Shemaiah, apparently. And Nehemiah goes to his house, and... Shemaiah says, there are people that are coming to kill you, and they're coming to tonight, tonight to kill you, so come with me, let's go into the temple, and let's go into the holy of holies uh, in the temple so that you'll be safe, so that people won't kill you, uh, Nehemiah. 
And what's happening here, Nehemiah figures out, is that Shemaiah has been paid off by Tobiah and Sanballat. And Shemaiah is supposed to try to get Nehemiah to compromise himself, okay? The distraction hasn't worked. The character assassination hasn't worked. So let's just try to get him to take himself out of the equation by compromising himself. And again, I think we would have to admit that getting the church, I mean, I don't know that we've needed the help, but getting the church to compromise its witness has been fairly effective in our time. And so to understand what's happening in this passage, why, why is he saying let's go into the temple? What does that mean? Well, we have to understand that the thing that made God's people unique is not that they were better than anybody else, but that God came and said, you will be my people and I will be your God and I'm going to dwell in your midst. And I'm going to do that in a physical way. And so at the center of God's people uh, throughout the Old Testament was the tabernacle and then the temple. And, the, and, the, and God made his presence known on earth in the holy of holies, in the, in the very center of the temple. Um, and, and, and that place was so holy that the presence of the, the, the good, like, here's, here's the question. How can a holy God, a God who is, who is perfect in everything he does, dwell in the midst of people who, like me and like you, are broken? And the, the answer is that he will dwell in the midst of those people, but he will dwell in the, in the holy of holies, in this room that is separated from the rest of the world, and is surrounded by various courts of the temple, and the holy of holies, where God's presence dwells, is inaccessible for every human being on earth except for one man, the high priest who only goes into the holy of holies one day a year. And when he goes into the holy of holies, he has a rope tied around his ankle because if he sins in the presence of God, If his brokenness comes in contact with God's holiness, his life will come to an end. And they're going to have a way to get his body back out. And this is the place that, that Shemaiah is saying, let's go there and let's, so we can be safe. <laughs> Sounds terrifying, right? Shemaiah is saying, go in there and hide. Use the presence of God as a means of protecting yourself. Break God's law to preserve your life. And again, Nehemiah responds with grace and truth, but mostly truth this time where he just, you know, he's still gracious, but he just says, no, I'm not going in there. And again, he prays and he prays for justice. And what I think we see is this, when Nehemiah is tempted to compromise by using God's temple to protect himself, is that he instead entrusts himself to God who promises to protect and provide for his people. When Nehemiah is tempted to compromise himself, he entrusts himself to the God who promises to provide for and protect his people. And I think Nehemiah's example here of remaining clear and committed to God's mission despite distraction, and despite character assassination, and despite the temptation to compromise, shows us that, firstly, that Nehemiah had an incredible awareness of who God was and who he was in light of God's the reality of who God is. In response to every criticism, every attack, he, his identity is so rooted in who God is that his first response almost every time is to pray. But I think that there's something more that Nehemiah must have known. In some sort of distant, shadowy way, he must have 
known something that has become much clearer to us on the other side of the cross. Because when Jesus comes, we see even more clearly than we do in Nehemiah the kind of attack and distraction and temptation to compromise that Nehemiah endured and that, of course, his people still endure. But in Jesus, we don't just see what we see in Nehemiah, which is a great example of a guy who does the right thing almost all of the time. In Jesus, we see one who doesn't just show us what to do, but actually accomplishes our mission on our behalf. And so Jesus, he lives a perfect life in which he is never distracted from carrying out the mission that God has called him to. He remains committed to his mission in the face of attack and temptation to compromise. And on the cross, he solves the whole paradox of of really the Old Testament, which is how can a holy God dwell with people who are broken like me and like you? And he solves that paradox by going to the cross. And on the cross, he, he, he just ex- he exchanges places with us. Where he says, here, you, you now have my perfection. And I will take on myself your sin. And Matthew tells us that at that very moment, at the moment that Jesus dies, the curtain of that temple that Nehemiah was tempted to rush into to find safety. The curtain of that temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And what happens when the temple, the curtain temple, the Holy of Holies is torn in two is that the presence of God is no longer hidden away from his people in this room that we can never access or go to. But the presence of God's spirit floods out into the world and into our lives equipping us and empowering us for his mission in the world today. Nehemiah must have somehow seen that somebody greater than him would come who wouldn't just do the right thing most of the time, but actually enable us to be the sorts of people who follow God on mission today. So what, what does that look like, and what might that look like in our, in our time and place? Well, I, um, look at verse 15. Simple words that kind of end this section. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. In 52 days. I think there are a lot of ways that we could apply, you know, this passage. But since we're here in this place, uh, I'm not sure if it was 52 days ago, but it probably was about 52 days ago that somebody first said, I wonder if this place would be a, a, a place for the table to meet. And we're here in this place, and we've been looking at this book that's about God's people regathering when they needed walls, and God has provided, and God has given us this space. But I think the question we need to ask is this, what is this place for? What is this place for? Because the perennial temptation of God's people is to use God's blessings for themselves instead of as a way to bless the rest of the world. I mean, that's the context of the book of Nehemiah. That's why God's people were in exile in the first place, because they thought that the blessing of being God's people meant that they were better, not that they were called to bless others. And that was the temptation as the wall was rebuilt to enjoy the safety of that wall instead of being a light, uh, a city on a hill and a light to the nations. 
And that was the temptation that Nehemiah faces, faced in this chapter to use God's house to protect himself. And this is what we see, and certainly what the world sees in the church today. When the world says, if God really is as gracious as you say, why aren't you more gracious people? So what is this place for? Could it not be a temptation for us as well uh, to use this space, this answer to prayer, uh, to bless ourselves instead of blessing others? Um, The question, I think, is this. Will we use this space as a place for our own protection or as a resource for mission? Will we see this place as just an easier option for gathering on Sunday mornings? I don't know the specifics of, you know, everybody's individual story. I have not gone to, um, this morning I came into church, and it's the first time in 15 years that I have gone to a church where nobody set up the sound system that morning. (laughs) I mean, that's awesome. (laughs) And and we're going to have lunch outside afterwards. And then we're going to close the doors and go home. And nobody's going to stay for two hours longer and take everything down. And that's amazing. And, and I don't in any way mean to, like, that is God's blessing to us. But is that why we're here? So that it's easier for us? Now, all I can say as I wrap up this sermon is I hope and pray And I want to invite you to hope and pray with me that God would enable us to use this space, not as the destination, but as a hub, as a foundation, as a a launching pad for ministry and for mission. And that what we witnessed 30 minutes ago, the baptism of a new covenant child, would just be the the first of many, many, many children that grow up knowing that this is a place where they met Jesus. And that just as, you know, there are are members of Redeemer Longmont who are here this morning with us who um, at the end of this month are going to launch a new church in Longmont, that there would be many, many more people who would leave this place on a launch pad for for ministry and mission. That's my prayer. That's our prayer. We don't own this building. We don't know how long we'll be here, but we know that God has answered our prayers in providing a place for us to meet. And Christ is, he has forgiven us of our sin, and he has sent his spirit into the world to enable us to be the sorts of people that are able to partner with him on mission in this world. And that's why we're here. So let me see if there are any questions um, this morning. Okay, so I haven't received any questions from you. So either the technology is still not working or uh, there are no questions. But I would love to talk with you more after Um, the service uh, one way or another or meet with you over the week if you have questions. Um, I love doing that, so please please don't hesitate to come and talk with me. Let me pray as we come to the Lord's table together.
Oh God, we thank you and we praise you that you uh, know exactly what we need. You provide for your people, you give us everything we need. And so God, as we meet, th- we, as we meet this morning as your church in this place for the first time, we simply say thank you. You know us, you give good gifts to your children. And so God, as we come to your table Would you help us to do so freely, knowing that Jesus has accomplished everything necessary to bring us into your presence? That we will never need to use your presence as a weapon to beat others with because it is the place that we have found safety ourselves. So would you use this bread and this wine this morning to strengthen us, help us to celebrate and smile as we eat together at your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.